Greetings from the rainy and cold state of Tel Aviv. I wanted to share something just a touch personal this time, which is that I'm loving my newish Sunday routine. It started off with New Year on the first Sunday. I begin with coffee and chit-chat with Yaakov Katz, who joins us again today. And together we recap the previous week's highlights. And from there, I go straight to my new yoga class at the local senior center. Yes, you heard that correctly. The worst part of signing up there was that no one even asked to see proof of age. I was pretty crushed. But it's been all fantastic ever since because it's great and it's a wonderful way to start the week. And the weeks here are hard. Israel is about the hostages all the time. All hostages all the time. No issue is discussed without considering how it impacts the hostages. That 136 people remain in captivity in tunnels in the Gaza Strip, tortured, abused, starved, is gutting what's left of the soul of this country. Where was our army on October 7th? Where was the government? Why were so many hostages taken? And why are they still there? Everyone goes around and around and around that same maddening loop. There's a lot of talk here about unity, about decisive victory over Hamas. But nobody really knows what that means, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He says it constantly, but he's deliberately vague about what total and decisive victory look like. And I think that's because he has no idea either. Yaakov and I talk about the hostages, and then we speak about the UNRWA implosion last week, which came about quite by accident. As with everything in the region, nothing is simple. Even in Israel, there are many powerful institutional interests that are in no hurry to shut down UNRWA. Because if UNRWA did not exist, how would Gaza function? And therein lies the rub. If there is to be any hope for Israel and the Palestinians of the Gaza Strip, then we must have de-radicalization contingent upon reconstruction. And the reverse, reconstruction contingent upon de-radicalization. It's a great phrase that you'll hear more about in the podcast. Stay with us for a short and pithy discussion today. I'm Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel, now living in the magnificent state of Tel Aviv. Stay with us. Good morning, Yaakov Katz, on this very rainy Sunday. How are you? Good to be with you, Vivian. Always good to see your smiling face. Just so you know, everybody, Yaakov's always got this very pleasant, calm, (laughs) happy demeanor. I don't know why. How do you do it? What are you taking? See, you're on something good. Exactly. There's something. You have There's to something. Be. You have to. I just drink coffee. I'm not laughing and smiling. All right. I want to talk about the hostages because even more so than ever, I think we've now reached 120 days. The weather is horrible here, raining. It's cold. It's miserable. 
everyone's desperately worried for their health and survivability in these miserable conditions. And it's interesting to know that over the last two, three weeks, people have stopped deferring to the government, which says, don't talk about it, don't talk about it, don't talk about the conditions, and the lid's blown off the pot. We're talking about the fact that they are being physically abused, psychologically abused, that there is chronic and constant rape of men and women. It's bad, and it's time to get them out. Yeah. We also know that there seem to be proposals floating back and forth between the Israelis who are led in negotiations by David Barnea, who is the head of the Mossad, along with some other people, and the Qataris, who are the mediators between Hamas and the Egyptians from time to time. And we seem to have arrived at this juncture where there's a disconnect. Up until now, Yahya Sinwar, who's in the tunnels with the hostages, has said, nope, we're holding out, we're holding out. And the Hamas guys who hang out in Doha in luxury have been saying, no, we want you to settle. Let's be, let's calm this down a little. And now the roles have flipped. This is what we hear and think that Sinwar is saying, get me out of here. I'm sure his, his Hamas guys are going crazy down there. I'm sure he is. And it's Doha that's saying, no, you got to hang on. You got to hang on for the big prize. We want Marwan Bargudi out and you're going to stay down there until we get him out. So maybe you can start by explaining to our listeners, who is this Marwan Bargudi and why is he such a prize? And then work backwards and share with us what you think of this impasse. Marwan Barghouti is... uh you know, just so our listeners know, was really one of the leading Palestinian terrorists back during the time of the Second Intifada. He was the head of the Tanzim, which was an offshoot of Fatah, close to Yasser Arafat, behind dozens and numerous attacks that killed dozens, if not hundreds, of Israelis. I was actually at his uh, trial at the Tel Aviv District Court. He was tried in Israel as opposed to military court, we decided for some reason, I don't remember the exact argument at the time, but they decided to try him at a in a civilian court. Mm. And he was sentenced to numerous life sentences in prison, I think five or six and another 40 or 20 years. The guy's never, never supposed to be released. Obviously, right. with what's happening, the Palestinians at Hamas are now asking for him to be released. He's one of the people. There's also Ahmed Sadat who was the head of the PFLP, who was caught in a showdown back in Jericho, I think in like 2005, 2006, when he was being held in a Palestinian prison and Israel thought he was going to be released. Israel went in, laid siege to that prison and captured him. He was behind the assassination of Rehavam Ze'evi, Israel's tourism minister. I think it was back in 2001 at a hotel here in Jerusalem. So these are not good people. And these are the types of people that the pal- that Hamas wants to see released in exchange for some of the hostages. Look, the hostages really, Vivian, are at, at, at the center of all of this. And it, it, there is a fierce argument. And I got to tell you, personally, I understand both sides. On the one hand, my personal opinion, we have to get these people home. It's enough already. It kill- it's just it kills us all to, to, to know what they're going through or to at least imagine. We don't know. Imagine what they're going through. Exactly. To know that it's been so long, to only to to know that they are alive and these are Israeli citizens who were in their homes, in their pajamas, at a music festival, whatever it was, they have to come home. They have to come home. However, we do have to recognize that we are again perpetuating the vicious cycle in which we are giving our enemies 
a reward for kidnapping our people at some point. And again, I'm not saying this is the point. I don't know when the point is easy for me to say, but we do have to think about this rationally for a moment. What is the price that makes sense? What, what, at what point do we say enough? We can't keep doing this because we're, we're, we keep on going down a rabbit hole and, right. and, and we're, we're, we're setting ourselves up for the next hostage taking. This is complicated stuff. And I can't imagine how difficult it is for, for these cabinet ministers to be making these decisions. Yeah, we are going down the rabbit hole and it's, it's a bag of snakes. I keep calling it that. Having said that, I'm going to just suggest that we passed the point of no return on this hostage negotiation weeks ago, maybe yeah. even months ago, where in order to exert leverage and use it for in the negotiations, we had to have done that already. We just that time has passed. And we now are. That's that's the horrible part of this is that Israel was humiliated. Israel was completely it was failed its citizens on October 7th. There's just no way around that from a military perspective and a government perspective. And that required some swift action that we've discussed pre in previous podcasts we didn't take. We weren't in a position to take. You're right. For a whole bunch You're of right. reasons. Military wasn't ready, caught unawares, not properly trained reserves, didn't have adequate equipment. And so those people sat for three weeks until we could even put boots on the ground. So the whole element of surprise pressure was gone. We couldn't do reverse shock and awe. And I think that that's when we, I'm much less of a military student or student of military tactics than you, but that's where we lost a lot of our leverage and power. I don't even know at this point if it's a true debate or if we've, we've put ourselves back into the same crappy place where we just need to get them out at all costs. Like we're back almost again. in Shalit land. We're almost in Shalit land again. I, I agree with you that we need to get them back. Is at all costs, I, I can't sign off on that. What I said, okay, they're, so we'll go, yeah, we'll go in circles. Be, no, I, again, listen, the bottom line is we're going to have to pay the price and we're going to have to do whatever it takes and we have to get them back. And if that means that we have to release thousands of people, we're going to release thousands of people. And if that means we have to release hundreds, we'll release hundreds. But we have to, we have to get them back. It's enough. It, it's enough. These people have to come home. We have to also eliminate Hamas's capabilities. We have to mm. somehow find a way to topple Hamas. I don't even know if that's possible anymore, to be honest. Especially if we go into a deal, we will be preserving Hamas and they will be remaining alive and in power. The deals, these are not good. These are not easy. These are not simple. And by the way, this is why Hamas did what it did. From the beginning, they knew what they were doing. They knew that the way to our hearts is, is what we call our, it's our strength and our weakness at the same time. It's our resilience and our vulnerability. It's the fact that we, we, we love every person, we preserve and sanctify life, but because of that, we're willing to pay crazy prices to get these people back. That's the weakness and the strength at the same time. So do you have any particular insights or information with respect to this purported disagreement or tension between Sinwar and the crew in the tunnels and the, the gentlemen from Hamas who live in Doha in luxury? I could just, I'll show you what messages Sinwar has been sending me. We're texting, but no, I'm kidding. <laughs> what's, he, what's up? Yeah, look, th th there is a disagreement. And I think it, from what we're reading and we're hearing uh, from the Israeli government officials, as well as from Arab media. And I think it makes sense because you do have Hamas officials like Hania, Abu Marzouk, and others who live outside of Gaza in luxury, in the lap of luxury in Doha. And then you have Sinwar who's on the ground. They, 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 they have influence over one another. 
their influence from the outside into, into Gaza is a little more limited. Sinwar is the guy who makes the decisions. They, on the other hand, are the ones who, who have the, the, the bank accounts and the money, and they have their hand on the cash flow to Gaza. They all need each other, but it's going to be up to Sinwar to make that decision. They're apparently more open. Others are more reluctant to what the type of deal. Will it be phased? Will it be a full deal? What exactly will be released? What numbers of prisoners will be released in exchange for the hostages? Is it three per hostage? Is it going to be more per hostage? This, is, this, this could be something that I think, while we saw that trip last week on Sunday to Paris, where the head of the Mossad, the head of the Shabak, were meeting with the head of the CIA and the Egyptians and the Qataris, this uh-huh. is still something that could take time. I, I, I don't, wouldn't be surprised if this drags on for a, a few more weeks. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I would tend to agree with you. At the same time that we're dealing with this hostage issue, we also had last week mini blow up of UNRWA, maybe not mini, maybe more major, where it was disclosed that uh, a number of UNRWA employees were without a doubt were Hamas uh, operatives, but also working in UNRWA schools, clinics, as social workers, all types of roles, and that they actively participated in the October 7th massacre and took some hostages. Seems that a, a detailed dossier uh, involving 12 UNRWA employees was shared by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Jerusalem with Philippe Lazzarini, who is the head of UNRWA, at a quite regular monthly meeting. Mr. Lazzarini, I was reading the New York Times, comes every month, sits down with his peer in the MFA, and they discuss UNRWA-related issues. Apparently, the MFA officer shared with him the full dossier and the full information. Lazzarini reacted with shock and horror, took it back to New York and Guterres. Mm-hmm. And we know that there was immediate and swift reaction. We're going to fire them. This is unacceptable. All of a sudden, countries start saying they're freezing money. Half of them are telling the truth. Half of them aren't. Canada being one that isn't. And we have this major international fracas over the future of UNRWA. And it's you and I are sitting here and saying, we've known this stuff all along. Hillel Neuer at UN Watch has been throwing evidence out there for years, and it just passes with the wind. And all of a sudden, it seems to be sticking and maybe turning into something else. Why? Why now? Look, UNRWA has long been the facilitator of the perpetuation of this conflict, right? The, the, The mere fact that there is an organization, an agency that basically preserves the identity of refugees through generations was always intended to serve as a as a uh, a way or a tool to undermine and weaken Israel. That was the whole purpose. Right? The fact that there are people who have been living born and second generation, third generation in Lebanon or Syria or Jordan and are still considered refugees. I'm sorry, I'm not a refugee. Right? My grandparents fled Poland after the Holocaust, survived, came to America. We never looked at ourselves as refugees. But according to if I if there was UNRWA. I would still be, my kids would be fifth, fourth generation refugees. Anyhow, the, the, that was what UNRWA was always about. And we knew also, as you said, Vivian, it was whether it was Hillel Neuer or Palestinian Media Watch or any of these other organizations that over the years, a memory that was putting out the videos and showing us the kindergartens and the summer yeah. camps and the textbooks. We always knew these, this is the most anti-Semitic and anti-Israel and terror supporting organization that exists out there. But what do we have now is that some of their workers were actually actively involved in the October 7th massacre. And that's caused this uproar. To me, it was, okay, I, I think there, there, there is, what's int- what makes this story interesting 
is less about UNRWA. It's more about Israel, in my opinion. Right? Israel has never really launched a targeted campaign to take down UNRWA. And I think there's two minds in this country. And speaking to Israeli officials this week, I got that sense as well, that there still are two minds. One mind is, oh, UNRWA is evil. We have to demolish them. Just what we just spoke about, the perpetuation of the conflict. They're bad. We have to get rid of them. But then there's a second mind. And I have to say is that this is more what you'll hear in the defense establishment. These right. are the people, because they care about stability. They don't want to have to deal with the food and the aid and the sacks of flour and the education system. They don't want to have to be responsible. So they say there's an organization that does it good. We can walk away. We don't have to be involved. It's small time thinking. It's, it's limited thinking. It's small minded thinking because for this war to end in a victory, Right. We have to attach de-radicalization to reconstruction. And that has to lead to the elimination of agencies like UNRWA. They can't be allowed to continue to operate. There needs to be a whole new culture, a whole new society that comes out of this war. I love that. I'm going to use that all the time now. We have to attach de-radicalization with reconstruction. Or to By the way, I could tell you, I, I just want to, if I'll add to that. You haven't copyrighted that, I, have I, you? It's not my line, okay. to be honest. It's a good line. Not, but it also, I want to, before, you, before you go on, it also ties in with the whole doctrine approach of containment that's prevailed um, in the Netanyahu era. This is, this Correct, is but totally a, consistent with the doctrine of containment. Yes? A hundred percent. But the, the, the UNRWA part is. Yeah, yeah it totally yeah, is. Yeah. To say, to say now that de-radicalization, though, has to be connected to reconstruction, I can tell you, I, a senior minister in the cabinet who I spoke to is the one who told me about this. And this specific minister is pushing for that to happen because of an understanding that without the de-radicalization, so we'll degrade Hamas. And de-radicalization, we also have to keep in mind, it's a long-term process. It's not something that yeah. happens tomorrow, right? You, but, but, but what it does for people who care about peace, this can create peace. This can actually allow for Two societies that are different to live side by side. But it, we're going to have to have the patience to wait a generation or two for that new crop to come up that doesn't is not tr taught from age four to want to kill me. And unfortunately, that's the reality today. I think on that cheerful note, we should probably wrap up because you did a very, very fine job. No, we both know that inside the establishment, security establishment and the foreign policy establishment, in Israel these days, that inside both these really important institutions, there is this dichotomy. Do we want UNRWA for stability? I've heard many times, I'm sure you have, that if we don't have them, then we're going to have to fill in and we can't fill in. We exactly. just can't do that job. Okay. So now the nice to our throat, and it is, and it should be, to participate in helping to develop palatable an alternative system. But you can just exactly. see the concessions that will be demanded of us in return. Yaakov Katz, always a pleasure. I hear you're off to my hometown next week, Toronto. Uh -huh. That's true. Looking forward to being free freezing. And I'm working coming on a from thaw. Israel, all I got to wear is a vest when I go outside. But on a really wintry day. I'm working on a kind of midwinter thaw for you. I'll let you know how it's going. And I look forward to having you back when, when you return. Thank you so much. Thanks, Vivian. We'll talk soon. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. We'll keep the dispatches coming as frequently as we can. If you like what you're hearing, 
please take a moment, rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can check out our full library of articles and podcasts at our website, stateoftelaviv.com. State of Tel Aviv is an independent media venture, and we rely on subscribers to support our work. If you are not yet a paying subscriber, please consider taking the plunge today. Each person really does make a huge difference, especially in these very challenging times in Israel. It is important that you stay informed and current and seek out a range of perspectives. This is a pivotal moment in Israeli history. It is not a time to be passive and disengaged. Thanks for sticking with me to the end. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv. Thank you.